turn in your Bibles to the book of James as we continue in our series that we've entitled uh, Real Faith, Real Life. And we've been learning from this five-chapter letter uh, from the New Testament that was written by the younger half-brother of Jesus. James, being the younger half-brother of Jesus, has a lot to say about his brother and his teaching and his ministry. He has a lot to tell us about the kind of life change that can take place when we give ourselves over uh, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We learned in week one that James, though being an intimate uh, part of Jesus' earthly family, that he would not come to that realization that his brother was his Lord and Savior until after Jesus would be resurrected from the grave, after Jesus would prove his power over sin and his power over death, would James' eyes be open and would he now bow the knee to the one-time guy that he may have wrestled with and, and played childhood games with. He would see him as something completely and totally different. And because of that, he becomes a leader within the church, and he articulates to us and shares with us one of the most practical letters in all of the New Testament. And what he does, James, what James does is he models, and in some ways he even, if you will, plagiarizes from his older brother. Because we're going to see over and over and over again in this letter, James piggybacking the words of his older brother Jesus and expounding on them to teach this church on what they need to do and how they need to live. Now, these last couple weeks, we've talked about what real faith looks like. And real faith uh, looks the same in times of triumph and in times of tragedy. Real faith is the same in times of trials and temptations. And now that we've looked at the study of trials and temptations, we've come to ask the question, what is the antidote when bad things happen? What is the antidote when I'm tempted to do things that go against the will and plans of God? And what we're going to get this morning in verses 19 through 25 is the answer. You want to be victorious in times of trial? You want to find victory in times of temptation? Well, today is the answer that James is going to give us with regards to how to find victory over these circumstances in our lives. And this is what he promises. He promises at the end of our passage that if we will do these things, if we will persevere in doing the things that he has commanded us to do, that we will be blessed in all that we do. Now, I know I already did a poll this morning, but this is a more serious poll. How many of you, and I want to see a show of hands, how many of you want to be blessed in all that you do? Okay? If you didn't raise your hand, come talk to me because you need help. Okay? Of course we want to be blessed. We want the God of the universe to bless all our decisions. We want him to bless all of our ways. And God says, I'm willing to do that if you will live your life the way I've called you to. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look to our passage this morning. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find our passage on page 10, 11 in the Pew Bibles uh, that are offered there in front of you. So you can turn there as well. So let's listen to what James has to tell us. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone, every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he who looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we ask for you to make your presence known to each and every one of us. Lord, I'm so thankful that we don't have to enter a building to enter into your presence, but when we stand amidst your creation through the gift of your Holy Spirit, we are always in your presence. We are continually in a position and posture of worship. But Lord, thank you for this time that we could tangibly and and in real ways come together as your body, reminding us that we are all different people from all different backgrounds with all different circumstances, but we come and your commands and your calling are singular. You've called your people to know your word and to do it. Lord, I pray that that simple axiom will be a truth that we will make evident in our lives. Lord, Lord, we pray that we would do all that we can to make sure that we don't just do one step and not the other. So, Lord, I pray through the teaching of your word this morning that we would be changed and challenged and we would leave here a bit different than the way we came in. We ask for your blessing on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up as a kid, my dad would use a phrase over and over and over again. It was kind of his just catchphrase, and I know he didn't invent it, but he sure should have gotten a royalty for using it. Having three sons, it seemed to roll off his tongue over and over again. And it was a phrase that I knew as a kid, but really never thought about until I got older into adulthood that I really came to understand it. It was a phrase that now in adulthood I've used in my business life, I've used in my ministry life, I've used it in the realm of leadership, whether in the family or in the community or in the church. And it's a phrase that maybe might cause some of you to cringe, but I think it's a good, it's a good proverb and, and parable. My dad would remind us as boys all the time, keep it simple, stupid. Now, I know that last word might be a little rough, so maybe you might want to change it, keep it simple, silly, or you can add your word there. But the gist of the phrase is is that we as human beings have a way of making things complicated. We have a way of adding steps and, and all kinds of superfluous information and structure to something that should be simple. And my dad would share this with his boys saying, listen, If you can't make it simple, then you're going to create all kinds of havoc and all kinds of struggles in your life because most of the things can be boiled down to very simple terms. It's not all brain surgery. It's not all things that we've got to wonder, can we truly accomplish the things before us? But if we look at them and get down to the very basics of the facts that are surrounding whatever we're looking at, that we can find victory. We can find productivity. And so my dad would say, listen... Keep it simple. Well, Christianity is no different. We as Christians create all sorts of complications to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We create all kinds of man-made rules and regulations by which we judge people on whether they're good Christians or not. And yet James seems to be the practical 
Christian. He seems to be the practical one that says, let's simplify this. Let's make sure that that there's no superfluous information to it. I I want you to know, he says, the Christian walk is a two-step process. And and he uses the KISS motto as well. Keep it spiritually simple. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be filled with all kinds of rules and regulations. If you can walk away with two simple facts, then you will be able to do what God has called you to do. And in doing so, you will be blessed in all that you do. And so what are those two steps? Two steps are easy. We need to know the word and we need to do what it says. Knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. Now, we need to have those in constant motion. When James says he wants us to know this, and he wants us to be doers of the word in verse 22, what he's saying is is you should be in an ongoing process of knowing information and in process always of doing what you've been told. And so the best way to illustrate this this morning is for you to hearken back to the days where you used to ride your bicycle. I know some of you still do, but it's been a long time since I've ridden a bike. But, but I remember those days where you'd get on the bike and you would propel yourself on that bike by doing a motion with your two legs. You see, the bike was equipped with pedals. And as you began to put your pressure of your legs on the pedals, you began to move. And I want you to know what James is saying this morning is like riding a bike. Knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. Constantly going. That is what's going to propel your Christian walk. You see, when we stop pedaling on a bike, what happens? We fall off. We can't keep ourselves up. But as long as we are continually pedaling, we're going to be able to stand and we're, of course, going to be able to advance in our Christian life. You see, those things, one cannot happen without the other. Now, sadly, in our world today, even in our church today, there are some of us who are doing one-pedal Christianity. Have you ever tried to pedal a bike with only one foot? You can do it, but it's cumbersome. It's difficult, and and on top of it, you're going to look pretty dumb in the process, right? What, What the bike has been made to do is to have two feet pushing down at those pedals in alternating fashion. And what James is articulating is, and I just want to continue to just just break this forth for you, knowing and doing. What's the Christian life? Knowing his word and doing what it says. It's that simple. And yet we make it so complicated sometimes as a result of our sin or our excuses Now, some will say right away, Tim, I get what you're saying, but here's my problem. I don't know enough. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard, I would start doing certain things if I only knew enough information, enough knowledge. And so let me tell you how this will play out. What I will hear all the time is I will tell people they need to evangelize. They need to share their faith. And their response will be, inevitably, I don't know what I would say. And so teach us a class. Give us information, because if we get enough information, then inevitably we'll be able to do what it says. The Bible makes it clear, and James makes it clear, that knowing and doing are on the heels of one another. You don't just know, 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 and then at some point after you've graduated college and seminary, that you turn around and you do, 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 do. It's know and do, know and do. And so we don't need to have more information. Quite frankly, to be honest with you, I'm going to give you guys a degree, an honorary degree. You are seminary graduates. 
in comparison to G, uh, James's audience. You have the word of God in your hands, at your disposal. Much of what they had in James's day, especially of the New Testament, was oral teaching. And so you have way more going for you than James ever did. And so these words of knowing and doing give us no excuse or opportunity to say we don't have enough. We've got more than enough, and our excuses fall on deaf ears. And so here's what James wants you to do. He wants you to know, and he wants you to do. How's he going to articulate this? Notice, first of all, the phrase, know this. He starts out with the phrase, know this. He wants you to know something. And that phrase, know this, is written in the original Greek language that should stop us in our tracks. Now, he's captured our attention with regards to trials and temptations. And he says, listen, if you want to get through the trials and temptations of life, you got to know this. And so what he's saying is, take note of this. You need to understand this. If you highlight, you know, he probably was saying, grab your, your parchment and pen and, and highlight that. This is important. This is going to set the trajectory for all that I'm going to say. Know this. The only way you're going to navigate through trials and temptations is by knowing the word and second, doing what it says. So let's notice knowing the word. He's grabbed our attention. We want to listen to what he says. And James says, okay, knowing the word is real faith. Real faith is a knowledgeable faith. What that means is, is we do not, as Christians, believe in, in just this amalgam of nothingness. Well, what do you believe? I don't know. I just believe. We don't tell people that. Well, who do you believe in? Nothing. We just believe. No, our faith is based in a substance or on a substance. It's based on a person. The person of God, the person of God that is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God who has revealed himself through creation and then through his word and then most expressively through the person of Jesus Christ who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We believe in God. Our faith is in God. There's a substance. There's a knowledge to it. And so when we talk about faith, our faith must be knowledgeable. And so for those that say, you know what, I don't want to study the scriptures, you know, I just have a simple faith, you know, the Bible says I have a, a childlike faith, and so, so my understanding of, of God and the scriptures is a kindergarten level, let me tell you something, that's a brutal excuse. That's like me saying after the first date, I didn't need to know Amanda anymore. I got all that I needed to know about her, and that pales in comparison to the unfathomable God who resides in glory in heaven. And so what James is saying is, listen, you need to know what you believe. You need to have a body of information. You need to be students of the word. Know this. You need to be ready to receive from God the revelation he gives. Now, James articulates what we need to know about the word. First of all, write this down. We need to know that we are loved by God. That we are loved by God. Know this, he says, my beloved brothers. This is the second time he's used the phrase beloved. Beloved literally comes from the root word agape. It is the kind of love that only God can give supernaturally to his people. And so he wants them to know that you are loved by God 
And because you've been loved with a special love from God that can only come from God, you're going to be able to not only love God back in that way, but you can love other people in that way. And he says, now know this, my beloved brothers. Now before James is going to hand out a list of do's and don'ts, it is imperative that we understand and recognize today that when we are told something by God, that it does not come from him as some bully or domineering boss. It is not as, and this is probably, probably close to the heart of James. I, I remember I was a middle child, and I remember my older brother used to boss me around. And I remember I would tell him, well, you're not the boss of me. Who gave you the credentials to tell me when I can and when I can't? It was amazing. We went from being a, a wonderful monarchy with a king and a queen, my mom and my dad, to a unilateral dictatorship when they left and went out on a date. And I'd be like, when did that happen? When did the coup take place? Because I don't like this. And I would remind them, you may be dictator for the next two hours, but the king's coming home. And you're not the boss of me. You, this is a democracy. And I vote you out. But God doesn't do that with us. God doesn't just give this list of things and say, listen, I'm the boss. You're the subject. You're going to do what I say whether you like it or not. Notice what James reminds us of is that we have been loved by God. So these commands that he is about, because he's going to give the list of do's and don'ts. And they're going to challenge who we are. And they're going to cause us to have to rethink our schedules and our, our priorities and our preferences. But before he does that, he says, listen, I want you to know where these commands are coming from. They're not coming from a cold boss, but from one who has proven over again his love for you, his children. Now, how does he do that? Notice he tells us earlier in the passage that we are loved we are beloved because God gives us every good and perfect gift. Notice verse 17, what we looked at at the end of last week. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen, every day for us as Christians is Christmas morning. Do you know that? Every day we wake up and God gives us Every good and every perfect gift, that phrase, that use of every twice in a matter of just a couple words, literally means you cannot count the amount of gifts that have come your way. Every morning we should be walking down our stairs and thinking, what gifts has God left under the tree in my life? No matter what trials, no matter what tribulations you're going through, you can never ever say, well, God isn't being kind and good and merciful and loving to me. And so what we need to be reminded of in times of trials, in times of, of temptation, is that one constant we know to be true is that God is so good to us. He gives us everything that we need, more gifts than we know or even realize. Second, we're beloved by God because he has given us new birth in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What James is talking about there is you and I have salvation. We have salvation and so God has not only given us all that we need for life, 
But now he's given us all that we need for our spiritual lives. We were lost and we were sinners. We were filled with all manner, as we'll learn about, of filthiness and and worldliness. And yet, God sent his son. He sent his son. He, He gave his son up so that Jesus might save us through his work on the cross. He poured out his wrath and judgment on his son so that he may pour out his love and mercy on us. You see, we're beloved because he was willing to forsake his son so that he might adopt you and I as his children. We are beloved by God. He gives us gifts. He gives us salvation. And then notice the third thing that he gives in his love for us is he gives us his word. He gives us his word. We are told in verse 21, That we are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That phrase save there is an important word. You see in the evangelical world we think of getting saved as a one time moment in time experience. Whether we came forward at a church meeting or raised our hand or or prayed a prayer with a teacher or a parent. We say we got saved. But that's not how James, and quite honestly, that's not how the New Testament looks at salvation. Salvation isn't viewed as this one moment in time, but it's a long and drawn out process. We are told before the foundations of the world, God has predestined and, and chosen us. And so before you and I were ever born, before we could do anything good or bad, God saved us. And then he brought us to a place called conversion where the gospel was preached and we bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. That's where we always think that's where we got saved. But that process of salvation doesn't end at the conversion because conversion, justification, changes our standing but then leads us forward in the next steps of salvation which are sanctification. And for the rest of our lives here on earth, we're in that long and drawn out process of seeing the salvation that was done before the foundations of the earth brought to fruition in our lives. That sanctification is made all the more clear as we go through times of trial and temptations. As we say no to sin and yes to Jesus and his word, we become more and more like Jesus. And then there's the moment where, where we will uh, see Jesus Christ face to face, where we'll be resurrected with our bodies once again, And Jesus will make our bodies like his own. We call that glorification. And that will happen on the great day of the Lord, where we will then enter and usher into eternity. You see, salvation is a long and drawn-out process. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that, that you can go in and out of salvation. We believe, and the Scripture teaches clearly, that once you are saved, you're always saved. Once you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from that love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. And so here, here is what James articulates. He says, this word that I want you to know and I want you to do, this word saves you. Now, it's not that the Bible saves us from our sins. Only Jesus can do that. What the word is doing is it's doing the ongoing sanctifying work in our lives. And what the Word is going to show us over and over again is that in every new day, in every new encounter, 
and every new trial and every new temptation that comes our way, whether we find victory in it or we find ourselves lost in it, God is saving us. He's saving us over and over and over again. He's making us clean by the washing, the Bible says, of his word. And what the Bible then is saving us from is it's guaranteeing for us over and over again that we're children of the king, that we're loved by God. The local Aldi grocery store has a guarantee that they give. It's not that if you're not happy with their product, they'll just give you a new product, but they call it a double guarantee. We're going to give you a new product, and we're also going to give you your money back. Listen, you don't ever have to be afraid buying our product. That's, in essence, what James is saying about our salvation. It's guaranteed. And not only does God guarantee it, he guarantees it over and over and over again. So if you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, you should never wonder If you are loved by God, he loves you and guarantees it in the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. And this is what he wants you to do. He wants you to know that truth from his word, and he wants you to live it out by doing what it says. We're loved by God. Next, he goes on and he says, we must, if we want to know the word, we must listen and remain level-headed. We must listen and remain level-headed. He goes on, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, that means all of you, this isn't a word to the teenagers or the word to the men or the word to the women. This is a word for all of us. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so what we're articulated here is quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Hearing the word is predicated on these three virtues. If you're not listening, if you're always talking and you're always angry, you will never hear the word. You'll never hear what God has to say. What James is articulating is in times of trials and temptations, we need to go to God. We need to give priority to God. We need to seek him and his wisdom first. Far too many of us as Christians go to the Bible as a last option instead of the first response. We go to our wallets. We go to our friends and family. We go to the local banker. We go to the psychologist. We go to medication. We go to all of these things. And all of those things in and of themselves, listen, have value. But they are secondary to the word of God. And so we need to quiet ourselves, shut our mouths for a moment, and not get angry with what the Word says, and listen to what God's Word has to say, so that it may lead us to some of those very truths and those very paths that we've talked about. But it is that as a first step, not as a step down the list. Far too many of us don't see the Scriptures in that way. Now, the context here, and we've got to be careful because as I looked and, and studied, a lot of focuses of preachers was on the relational side between you and I. Listen, this is how a sermon would go as I listened to it. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Parents, listen to your teenagers. Listen, they've got a lot to say. Listen to them because someday you're going to want them to listen to you. And, uh, and so do that. Listen, that's all fine and good. Yes, and relationally, it is helpful if you don't do all the talking in your marriage, but you do some listening. 
But that's not what James is talking about. And to extrapolate that what he's talking about is our listening and speaking here and how it helps us relationally is to neuter all of what James is teaching in the text. He's talking about listening and being slow to speak and slow to angry in our relationship with God. And so if we want to hear from God, we've got to shut our mouths and we need to be quick to hear with humility what God has to share. Now, this draws in the question of, is it bad to talk too much? No. Is it even bad to talk a lot when talking for God? No, I make a living doing that, right? And I talk a lot. Now, one of the things that was going on in James's day was because there wasn't um, the completed scriptures, that there was a lot of sharing going on in the local church assembly. And so people would stand up and they would say, hey, this is what God is telling me, or this is what God is saying. And, and there would be prophesying going on where someone would get up and say, this passage meant something to me, and I think it should be addressed to all of us. And people were standing up in the public worship assembly, and they were articulating stuff that probably they shouldn't have. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't, per se, out of bounds. But it just maybe wasn't what God was saying. We need to be very careful when we articulate to a group of people, well, God shared this with me, or God told me to do this. Because if it's not in Scripture, we are outside of, of really knowing whether or not that's true. And so people would stand up and they would articulate all kinds of things about God. And what James will say in James 3 is not, all, not meant too many of you should be teachers. Y'all shouldn't be talking about God in an authoritative way. Because you need to recognize when you take on that role, you put yourself under a stricter judgment. And so you need to listen, and you need to stop talking so much. Now, this comes out, most importantly, in the public teaching of God's Word. And this is hard for me because as the teacher, of course, it would do me well to tell you to listen better. So let me encourage you with something. I believe I've got a well-listening audience and congregation. As we've brought in uh, pastors who have spoken from this pulpit, I will hear over and over again how easy it is to preach to Village Bible Church because you are ready and willing to hear from the Word of God. Well, that's encouraging, but we can always do better, right? We can always be more quick to it, and here's what I will always articulate. You should always be challenging what I say. Paul told the Bereans to do that, and they did it, and they were blessed as a result. But be careful that you don't get into arguments with me, but that as you see the Scriptures and as it's laid out before you, that you would do that business between you and God. Now, that doesn't make me infallible in any way, and if you had any question about that, just talk to Amanda, okay? That's just not true. But so often, we will take what has been articulated and it's the word of God taught to us. And we'll say, you know what? The preacher didn't know what he was talking about. But here's what I will offer to you. I've poured over these passages, dedicated time and study. And I'm going to do my best to articulate what I believe as clearly and what has seemingly been agreed upon by Bible scholars throughout history of what a passage says. Fully knowing I'm desiring to be led by the Holy Spirit. You need to take that and ask the question, am I deflecting my anger? Am I deflecting my critique 
off of my own relationship and putting it on Tim or whoever's speaking to me or whoever's leading my small group? Or am I willing to listen and maybe be changed that maybe I shouldn't shoot the messenger? Maybe he's not the problem. Maybe I am. Now, here's what I need to remember. That when we go through the TSA line in heaven, you guys will go through the easy line and your elders will be pulled out for a more thorough examination. And so I know what I'm accountable to. I know that my words are going to be challenged by my God in heaven, and they're going to be critiqued by my God in heaven. And so I recognize that. And so what I'm asking you to do is let God work on me. Let the elders do that with me. And what I want to challenge you with is that you first would say, okay, Lord, you've told me something what do I fix? Now, if there's something glaring or something that's obnoxiously wrong, speak up. Speak up. But so often, I will hear people have arguments between them and God, and they've brought me into the equation. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, this issue of anger, the problem with anger is when you get angry, you're not thinking straight, okay? Because all you really are concerned about in anger is what you're angry about and how you can tell the world that you're angry about it. And so you're never thinking through maybe what the Word has taught or what God's directing you to. You want to articulate very clearly, I'm not listening. I want to tell you whether in word or in deed how angry I am. And so as a result of this, not fully understanding our faulty listening, James wants us to articulate that when we live naturally instead of spiritually, we are quick to pronounce opinions, verdicts on situations and people. When we're not slow to speak, knowing that's an ongoing command, that what will begin to happen both in our devotional life and in the public scripture reading and teaching, we won't listen and we will not know the word as we are called. Now, how do we know if we're receiving the word of God? Here are two tests. Write this down. The first test that I want you to ask yourself this morning, not look to your spouse or to the person sitting next to you, is the passion test. And the passion test is this, quite frankly. How fired up do you get to study and hear the word of God taught to you? Let me ask you, deep down inside this morning, were you saying, you know what? I'd rather stay home today. I don't need to hear that. I got better things to do with my life. How many of you, when, when I got up this morning, looked and said, boy, I hope he doesn't go the full allotment. He sounds a little sick. Maybe he'll run out of air. How many of you right now are saying, you're wasting time. Just get to the final point. I can fill out this little sheet of paper and say I listened. How many of you prepare yourselves to hear the word of God and are excited about it? Excited to hear the scriptures opened again. Excited to hear, God, you're going to teach me. You're going to train me again. That's the passion test. Are you passionate about the word of God? Next is the priority test. When the Bible tells me to do something, whose view takes priority or or precedence? When God says do something, do I say, I don't know. Upon further review, yeah, that's too much. I'm going to do my own thing. Who takes priority, you or God? That sounds good. (laughs) Jesus says that if we love him, we'll obey his commands. 
and we will enjoy doing so. It will not be a drudgery, but it will be a joy. Well, for that to take place, there's some things we've got to let go of. There's some things we've got to let go of. James says we must put away all filthiness and wickedness. The word filthiness there is an important word. While I don't mind the translation, it does seem to go kind of outside of what we would think of filthiness, but I'm no Bible translator, so we'll stick with filthiness. But in the original Greek, the word literally was used in the medical field, and it was used as talking about a condition of your ear. And I know some of you got this, and you don't want to admit it right now, But filthiness in the Greek literally meant you had excessive wax buildup in your ear. Okay? Now talk about gross, right? You know, so much wax that it causes you the inability to hear. And so what do we do? We do the unthinkable, right? We take a a, a fluffy little object called a Q-tip and we stick it in until you can't push any farther, right? Because then you're pushing into your brain, by the way. And we start wiggling it around, and then we pull it out. Now, here's the crazy thing. We look at it. (laughs) And the natural response always is, ooh. Okay? And then we go in there again because we're like, if I pull that out, I better see what else is in there. And, and what James is saying is, is, listen, if you want to know the word, you got to get the wax out of your ears. What a great illustration. Clean out your ears. Now, what is this wax buildup that's in the ear? Where did I don't even know where that stuff comes from. I'm told by doctors that that's good, okay, that if it's not too much of it, it's a good thing. It lubricates the ear and all of that, and I, I know far too much about earwax, <laughs> But here's the thing, the the wax of our spiritual hearing comes from the temptations that we give ourselves into. And so James has talked about the temptations, these things that come into our lives that that we don't get rid of, of before they become sins, and they start creating a wax buildup in our ability to hear. Listen, if you're saying yes to temptation, you cannot in the same voice say yes to God and his word. It's an either or proposition. You can't have your sin and have the scriptures at the same time. Jesus tells us we're going to love one master and hate the other. You can't serve both. So you're either serving your desires or the decrees of God. And so what James is saying, you got to get the wax out. Because if you don't get the wax out, if you don't put it away, and he doesn't mean just put out a little of it. He says get rid of the whole uh, allotment of it. All the rampant filthiness and rampant wickedness in your life. Get rid of it all. Put it away. Be done with it. Because if you don't, you will always be distracted. Let me illustrate this for you. My youngest son, Luke, I love him to death. He's a great kid. But he has a medical condition that when his eyes are focused in on a TV, his ears stop working. So we'll be in the kitchen, and we can see we've got a window from the sink in the kitchen, and he's looking up at the screen, and I know he hears what's going on, and we'll say, hey, Luke, buddy. Hey, Luke. Luke. Luke, can you hear me? I think Luke's gone deaf, honey. And he's just like this. And then we finally, we come out to the room, and we jostle him. He's like, what? 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 You're bothering me. What do you want? 
Well, we've been calling you for a half an hour, son. Why? Because we're distracted. And the temptation that we have is all of the things that our body and our, our flesh cries out that we've got to have. And so God is announcing. So think about that. You're so preoccupied with the temptations of this world. And God is like Amanda and I to our son, yelling at the top of his lungs, are you going to listen? Are you going to remain level-headed to do so? You've got to let some stuff go. You want to get all of the scriptures and all of the value that comes from it, you got to free yourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit of the temptations and the sins that come our way. So here's the issue. Let's pivot, and I won't take a lot of time in the second one because the second point is doing what it says. Now that we know what the Word of God does, now we need to do what it says. Now here's a problem. Here's a problem. We're a Bible church. Bible is our middle name. We do a lot of preaching and teaching. And one of the defaults is, is that we get into one-pedal Christianity because what we will do is we want to make sure we know the Word. We are at point number one in my outline kind of church. We want to make sure we know it. We want to hear the Word of God taught to us, okay? We want to know all the deep meaning and understanding of it. We want to know the Greek and Hebrew of it. And so we don't get to the second point as quickly. Our focus and our desire is point one. And if we get to point two, well, that's cream on the top, but that's not how God illustrates this in the book of James. And so here's what happens as a church. I learned this illustration from another pastor, and and so I'm going to share it, and I think it's got some merit to it. And he tells the story of a father who came down on trash day, and he was up before any of the other kids, and he sees that all the trash containers in their house are full. He even sees and senses that the house is beginning to smell because of the trash. Knowing that he doesn't want to wake up all the kids, he writes a note. And he writes this incredibly glowing note. Kids, I just want you to know how much I love you. It's been a great weekend. It was so fun taking you guys out for ice cream. It was so fun uh, going to this game and that game. I'm so proud of you. I love you. I want you to know when I'm away from you, I think the world of you. But here's the thing, as I was, and he's penning these words, he says, but as I was noticing, all the trash needs to be taken out. And so here's what I need you to do. Today's trash day, I need you to take out the trash. Love dad. Love and sincerity about relationship with a command. Take out the trash. So he goes to work. And he comes home after a long day of work. The kids have gone off to school. They've come back, and dad walks into the kitchen. And the first thing he notices is the trash can. Do you think it's empty or full? It's just as full as it was before. And he says, all right, guys, it's family meeting time. And he brings the whole family together, and he says, hey, guys, did you get my letter? Yeah, dad, we got it. Well, what did you do? Well, dad, we got to be honest with you. We have never read a letter that is so well written in all of our lives. I mean, the way that you used imagery, the way that you articulated this was beautiful. And what it did was it sparked our attention about the whole subject of trash. And so we started to investigate, where does trash come from? And what happens when we throw the trash out? Where does it go? And we thought about things like carbon footprinting and, and, and all of that. And we learned about recycling. And so we got on the internet and we did all kinds of research on all subject matter of trash. And what we learned is the Bible talks about trash. 
It says that man-made religion is like garbage. And that in the Old Testament days, garbage was taken out of the city of Jerusalem to a place called Gehana. And Gehana was a pile of trash that they had set on fire, and it was always on fire. It was always burning. And dad, did you know that, that, that trash and garbage symbolizes our sin before God? We had no idea. Did you know that trash is referenced more than three dozen times in the scriptures, dad? Can you believe it? I mean, we've learned so much about trash. What we did is we invited our friends over, and we started a little small group here in the afternoon to talk about trash. And that's it. We're just, Dad, we just, this is the greatest thing in the world. And you know what Dad says? Why didn't you take out the trash? I gave you one command, and you didn't do it. Listen, Bible Church, sometimes, and it is a sin that we can allow ourselves to get into, more, we're more worried about knowing the text than actually doing it. And we've got to, there's a knowledge. We've got to have a knowledge of the scripture. But remember, we don't just soak up knowledge, more and more knowledge. Listen, a sponge soaks up things. And listen, I want you to do this. This will be a great experiment for you at home. Take a sponge, squeeze it out, and put it into a thing of water, and let it soak up all the water, and set that water-filled sponge on your counter and leave it for a couple days. What's going to happen? It's going to start to smell. It's going to start to mold. It's going to start doing all manner of things. Why? Because sponges are not built for a long period of time to hold water. Their job is to be squeezed out. And so we fill it up, and then we squeeze it out. We fill up with spiritual things, and then we squeeze it out. Well, knowing is filling. Squeezing is doing. Don't be like that family that's talking about the word, but not doing what's been said. We need to know the word, and as we're knowing the word, like that bicycle illustration works, we need to be doing what it says. So notice, doing what it says. James makes it clear, verse 22. We have to be doers of the word, not just hearers. There's a real temptation to do one, but not the other. Now, here's the problem. You're like, well, how bad could it be? I got 50% of it. What, what James says is twice, he says, you're deceiving yourselves if you think you've got real faith, if that's the case. And he says, listen, in verse 26, that kind of faith is worthless. If you just hear what the word says and you have a knowledge that puffs you up, your faith is worthless unless you're doing what it says. That's why James later on will say, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Because faith apart from works is not real faith. Now, does that mean that we're saved by works? Absolutely not. But we're saved to do good works. That faith will lead us to the good works God has called us to, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. So what is doing what it says looks like? First of all, it involves resigning yourself to it. Resigning yourself. It says receive with meekness. That phrase meekness literally means gentleness, and, and, and that doesn't help us. The original Greek language was a word that was coined during the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was known to have powerful horses, and he would ride one of the most powerful horses around. It, it, it was breathtaking, historians say, to watch him on his steed. And what they would say is, what a powerful horse 
Yet this powerful horse is kept under control. This horse submits itself to its rider. It's been harnessed its power. Its power has been subdued, not taken away, but brought under control by the one who's leading it and guiding it. Here's the thing. The believer must resign themselves to God and his word. And so we're walking around, we got power and we've got strength, and God says, I want to put a harness on that. I want to control that. And either you're going to be a bucking bronco or you're going to allow yourself to be tamed by the word of God. And listen, I don't know if you've ever watched a horse be tamed. It's not a pretty sight, right? There's a lot of arguing going on between the horse and the trainer. But the horse at some point says, listen, he's not giving up, so I better start listening to what he says. Some of you right now are bucking the word of God in your life. Resign yourself to it. Submit to it. Number two, receive it. We are to take this word and we are to receive the implanted word. That phrase implanted moves us to the agricultural picture. And it speaks of the ground being properly cultivated so it can receive the seed. Jesus talks about this of the four types of soil there are in the Gospels. And he says that just because seed is thrown on the ground doesn't mean that it's going to be implanted. So the farmer's got to cultivate. He's got to break up the ground. And and literally what this means is he's got to rid himself of all the weeds. That there can be nothing in competition that keeps or chokes out the seed from growing. And so are you receiving? So the question is, how have you prepared your heart this morning for the word of God to be implanted in your life. Now here's the problem. A lot of us say, well, we'll sing some songs and that'll get my heart right. I don't think the human heart turns that quickly. And so preparation needs to be going on and on and on. We need to constantly be cultivating, pulling the weeds in our lives so as the word of God is proclaimed in our personal study, as the word of God is proclaimed in our small groups, as the word of God is preached and proclaimed in our church activities and worship services, that seed is falling into fertile ground which will have all the opportunities for real and true growth to take place. We've got to receive it properly. Notice we've got to reflect upon it. He goes on and he uses another metaphor. He says, for if anyone is a hearer, verse 23, of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in all that he does. So he says, listen, going to the word is like you and I going to the mirror. Now, how many of us, let's really highlight some people real quick. How many of us didn't look in the mirror this morning? I want you to be honest. How many? Yeah, none of y'all, y'all look put together. Okay? We all look in the mirror. Now, I want you to notice that when he says when a man looks in the mirror, he's not speaking when a human being, he's speaking gender specific when a male looks in the mirror. Why would he talk to a male about looking in the mirror? Because he knows our tendency isn't to do what our wives do, okay? Amanda is up on a Sunday morning a half an hour, 45 minutes before I even think about getting up. I walk by, I do a drive-by of the mirror, okay? 
I don't spend a lot of time there looking intently in the mirror. So he's saying, hey, guys, we're not really good at this. And so what guys will do is guys will go and they'll do a drive-by past the mirror and they'll forget right away what they look like. They'll forget whether or not there was an issue. For men, a lot of times it's, uh, it's shaving. How many times have we missed spot shaving because we don't spend a lot of time there? We don't look intently into the mirror to make sure that all of our face is clean. And so notice what he says. The phrase he uses, his natural face. His natural face. When he looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, what's James saying there? Literally, if you write down things, this would be a good place to write down a note. Uh, The face of his birth. The face of his birth. That he knows what he looks like. It's the unblemished, it's the unchanged face. The face he's always had. What, What I want you to know is what I think James is getting to here is when we look into the word of God as our mirror, we don't see what we, we, we see not only what we are, but when we look intently into it and we start seeing beyond the blemishes, we look to what God wants us to be spiritually. And so we look in the mirror, and God doesn't just show me my sin, but he shows me what I can be and what I am in my standing with Christ Jesus. And so then those glaring issues start to pop out at me. And I begin to say, well, if I want to look how I used to look or how God sees me, then this needs to change, and this needs to change, and this needs to change. But to do that takes time of reflection. If we're okay with the sin and filth, then we will never become what Christ wants us to be. Notice we must respond to it, verse 25. It says that we look into this perfect law, the law of of liberty, and perseveres. The, The word I want you to underline is the word perseveres. Because listen, to do what the word of God says is gonna take endurance. To do what the word of God says means we're going to have to let go of our temptations. To do what the word of God says means that we're going to have to give a priority to the word, a preference to the word that will change the way we live. Because as we look at it, we don't change the mirror. Some of you would like to change the mirror. You'd like to get a different kind of mirror. There's these apps now on your phone. You can take a picture and you can change the way you look. I know some of us want to do that, right? We want to take away, we want to Photoshop some things on our own. But listen, the word of God doesn't Photoshop. It changes us from the inside out. And so we've got to respond in that way. But to do so, we've got to persevere. We've got to be students of the word. And so we've got to get on that bicycle of the Christian life, and we've got to know the word, and we've got to do the word. Know the word, do the word. Know the word, do the word. What are you not, what are you not doing today? Do you not know the word? Then get into it. Are you not doing the word? Then persevere and do the hard work of saying, Lord, where you told me to go, I will go. Where you lead me to, I will go there. I will do what you say. You are the leader. I am the follower. Not my will, God, but your will be done. James is simple on Christianity. Know the word and do what it says.